0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working On Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working On Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez.
2: Welcome back to the Working On Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is my home base, This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and is an extension of the work I do at Alex Cortez and Associates. I'll get to my guest in just a moment, but first let me thank my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. If you don't know them, Jobbing.com is the leading locally focused job board in the nation. They are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard and giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Great partnership. Thank you, Jobbing.com. For this week's conversation, with me is Shannon Thomas, who is the owner and lead therapist of South Lake Christian Counseling. She works with a variety of therapy and life coaching topics and focuses on individual growth and improving interpersonal relationships. In this episode, we'll be talking about why and how she began this career in counseling and what she loves about it, psychological abuse and the six stages of recovery she uses as a guide to help her clients, and how and why psychological abuse occurs and how we can recognize if we're in a psychologically abusive relationship shen great to have you with me welcome to the working on purpose show
3: great thank you i've been really looking forward to getting a chance to chat with you
2: yeah me too i think this is going to be a very nourishing conversation (laughs) so we're going to be talking about your counseling practice but to get us started will you tell us why did you become a therapist why this work and not something else
3: Well, you know, it's kind of a funny story because I never planned on being a therapist. Um, I actually had a very dear friend back in my 20s that said, oh, you make a great therapist, and I think my exact response was, oh, absolutely no way. (laughs) I just had a bias of, oh, I just don't want to sit there all day, and no, this would be terrible, and my undergraduate degree is actually uh, legal studies with an emphasis in politics. so I would planned on going into law school, and so ending up a therapist was a completely different route, but what I realized is that Walking down that journey of going, starting towards law school was that I really just wanted to do public interest, and life has a way of twisting and turning, and I ended up getting a master's in social work, and more twists and turns, I ended up in private practice. So it is one of those stories that you can make the best plans, but you never know where you're going to end
2: up hmm. Can I ask really quick, I have to I have to drill down on that whole thing, because I can appreciate I actually somebody told me years ago that I should be a therapist. And I said something similar, like, no way, heck no. Um, right. And today, I kind of do function as a work therapist. That's kind of really how it comes down when it comes down to organizational development and leadership development and, you know, executive coaching. In many ways, I do have a there is a counseling therapist role in that. So what was it that made you say, No, I don't want to do that?
3: I think at the time in my own life, you know, I was going through personal journeys, which I think also contributes a lot to the work that we end up doing and the richness that can come from our life experience then with education can morph it. But I think at the beginning, it was like I had a bias that it would be negative, that um, counseling was going to be uh, dreary, and it could not be further from the truth. I mean, I have to sort of apologize to our neighbors sometimes of the last thing that ends up happening in our office because um, personal growth and change can be very exciting, be very positive. It can be Hard things we talk about, but done in a way that 's really exciting and I think my bias in the beginning was just the traditional you 're going to have a client that comes and sits on the couch and lays on the couch it 's all the stereotypical ideas that we have of counseling that are so different now, like with life coaches and therapists that are very growth oriented and uh, I think it's just with a lack of knowledge of what it really could be
2: Mhm I can appreciate that. I think I was in a similar boat. And and so you started to talk about this, this notion of laughter happening and personal growth and change. But I you know, I'm a meaning of work researcher. I care about how people connect with their work and find meaning in it. So what are some of the things that you love about the work you do? And why is it important to you?
3: Yeah, it's really just a, a huge blessing and a gift because I never dread going to work. I love it. It's an opportunity to be very intellectually stimulated all day long and be able to work with folks who really want to have the things that have happened to them or choices that have been made or things that have gone on, to not leave them stuck. And to me, I look for patterns. That's the way my mind works. And so as I hear stories, and as we talk about um, subconscious behaviors and things that are going on, it's really rewarding to be able to pluck out different patterns of people's behaviors that they might then go, wow, I completely see that picture now, but I didn't see it before, through all of the other personal experiences. So for me, I get to use my giftings, the way my mind works in a way that um, helps folks and also feels very enriching to watching people overcome things that have been very, very difficult.
2: Mm-hmm. I had a, a conversation with another guest, I think it was last fall, who's a psychotherapist. And one of the things that she said about her work, and I'm wondering if this resonates for you too, is that she loves to be, allowed and invited in into people's intimate lives and to be in that connection that comes with it. Can you relate to that? Is that true for you too?
3: Absolutely, and I think that there's a lot of room for the different types of therapists. You know, if we do our personality test, sometimes people would assume a therapist has like an S in those Myers-Briggs tests, and I don't. I have a TM, much more thinking. And so I think that there's room for a lot of personalities within the field, and being able to have clients come in, and I have a practice that is um, closed in the sense that we meet for a session, we see if it's a good fit for them, if it's a good fit for me. And so all the clients that I work with are people that I'm very engaged in watching their growth, watching what's going on for them. I'm not the expert in the room. They are the expert of their lives, and I'm just there to sort through all of the pieces and be able to figure out okay, how can we make some lasting change? And that is an incredible gift to be invited into their world.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, uh, well, I'm also, by the way, uh, a, a, a T thinking person versus a feeling person, and I would probably. Uh-huh. You know, best relate to more of that style. So I can appreciate that there is a diversity of uh, personality types that practice in your field. Totally get that. Makes complete sense. Um, I, I'd like to know about your path. I mean, one of the things that's kind of fun is I do teach at SMU. So I teach students who are just starting their careers and they always want to know, you know, get speakers that will tell us how they first began. So I just, if you can, just can you sketch for us how this career came to be? Sure.
3: Um, I had started working with family and children' services out in California when I was in my bachelor 's program doing an internship highly, highly recommend internships. doesn't matter. I was a reentry student, so it didn't matter that I was you know, not the traditional student of my age. I was an older student. And um, internships are just wonderful opportunities to see if this is an area that you'd be interested in. And I went into that internship really looking at it from another perspective of wanting to do the law rather than wanting to be a social worker. And like I said, things changed. And so I went and got my master's in social work And from there, I continued working in family and children's services, and then we relocated, and I really enjoyed one of my internships during my master's program, which was counseling at a school setting. So we moved here. I wanted to go ahead and continue in that uh, counseling uh, road path there, and I would never have known that I would have enjoyed counseling if I hadn't done that during my master's program as one of my placements. And so when we moved here, I started in um, an internship in private practice because you have to do many hours postgraduate work. And from there, it just evolved into being at another agency for my hours to then opening my own practice when I was, had the full license to be able to hang my, hang my shield out there. And so my sign, and, and that's been sort of the journey, is getting experience while a student and getting postgraduate experience was very, very important.
2: Mm-hmm. I could not agree more with that. And In fact, that's one of the things that we do focus on with, with the SMU communications department is it's we try to really work with the students to help them get those internships because they do help you understand, do I want to do this work? Is this the right stuff for me? And also, certainly, then when you go out and get your, quote, real job, then you've, you can actually say you've got experience, which is valuable. So I yeah, entirely actually. endorse that. And I wish I would have done that. I didn't go that route. Of course, I did everything the hard way, but... <laughs>
3: Um, Sometimes those are good paths too. They're adventurous, right?
2: Oh, I have had some adventure in my life. That's true. (laughs) Uh, you, you mentioned that in, in your, when you talked about your path there that, you know, here you are, you, you are in business for yourself. And I know a lot of our listeners may be listening to this because they do want to understand just how that happened and maybe what you've learned along the way um, to be successful as a business owner. So first, let me ask you, what made you decide to, to go off on your own? Why, why be an entrepreneur?
3: Well, you know, that's probably more of my uh, I only child syndrome. I joke that I don't make a very good employee, and I know that. And so <laughs> uh, my only child syndrome is I like my stuff, and I don't want people touching my stuff. <laughs> and so I like to do but I completely own that. And I like to do things sort of um, the way that I think is best, and I don't like to go through a lot of loopholes. I am an entrepreneur. Uh, spirit is that I want to think about it execute and go and um, so I had a wonderful experience as an intern out here finishing my hours it was a great private practice but I was chomping at the bit the entire time because I had marketing ideas I had um, ways of practicing with clients that I wanted to do I, I just really wanted my fingerprints all over it that doesn't scare me and so um When I was, I literally, I think, took my licensure to have a certain level to be able to practice independently on like April 1st and May 1st, I opened up because I was, I was running to go for those two years. And I had a supervisor who was wonderfully gracious to be able to let me go as far as I could while my internship to develop. Um, He wasn't threatened by that at all. And that really was a blessing to me so that when I did get my license, all I had to do was change my paperwork. I was already sort of there in the mindset um, your other question was, you know, what have I learned or what ha- what's an opportunity as far as as a therapist for other folks in different industries to be able to do it themselves? And it's, it's challenging for sure, as I'm sure you know, that you run into roadblocks all the time, but it's being able to look past those and figure out what will work for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So what are some of the things that you've learned by being in business for yourself? I, again, I know that sometimes people will tune into the show precisely because they want to see what kinds of gems they can learn from from my guests. Um, so what have you learned that you think might be helpful to listeners that are maybe contemplating starting their own business or starting their own practice?
3: Well, I think the very first thing is self-care. Um, I'm a supervisor for other intern therapists, and we talk about self-care at nauseam. And I think that it's very, very important to not let yourself burn out. And people that know me know it's a constant struggle to get enough sleep, to be exercising enough. If we don't have anything to give, that business cannot succeed. And so there's a season for sure where we're stretched and stretched and stretched, but we can't be so stretched that the quality starts to slip And when that happens, we have to slow down so it it remains at the level that we want it to be. I think the thing in my industry that's different is that, um, not to throw mental health under the bus at all, but it's not the most progressive industry. Um, You don't see a lot of entrepreneurs in private practice doing multiple things like radio shows and writing and other types of speaking. Um, A lot of therapists in the industry will, you know, go to their office and do their work and go on insurance panels and some of the more traditional route. So I think it's being comfortable with getting out of the box. I use a lot of social media. And within the mental health industry, there's concerns about confidentiality and other things. We need to catch up to using social media and using platforms. And so I think that folks that are out there that need gems on what would be applicable to their industry is be bold, you know, within your ethics, within your guidelines, whatever it is that you have confined by, but be bold in it and push those boxes and push the industry forward so that people can see, oh, this isn't scary, that we can stay ethical, we can cover confidentiality like in my industry and yet have a very strong social media presence and some other ways of reaching folks in, in non-traditional manners.
2: Mm-hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, I, I'd like to understand how you've gone about developing your practice and how you get new clients. That, obviously, that seems like that's got to be the biggest um, nut to crack out there. So how have you gone about that?
3: Well, when I started in the internship, when I was finishing my hours, because we have to finish 3,000 postgraduate hours after our master's, so that's a long haul, and you can't go on insurance panels, which I had no interest in going even near that at all because my head explodes every time I feel like I'm going to have to deal with insurance. So they've made it so difficult for practitioners to navigate those roads um, that for me I had no choice but to get out there and market. It was very traditional networking groups, um, meeting folks, uh, going out, and I'm South Lake Christian Counseling, so making some relationships with different churches, um, being able to really network and get to know people so that clients would start to come in, delivering a great product, a great quality um, experience for clients so that they would feel comfortable referring their other friends and family and different people that they come in contact with, and it really became word of mouth. The social media piece, I've already mentioned that, but that was huge for me. Uh, Blogging, being on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of those really helped with with the networking and the marketing, and also changing people's biases like I had even about counseling. We, the writing that I do and, and the things that I post, that gives them a flavor of what they may be you know, experiencing when they come in to work with me as a therapist. So it's very much about the networking and the meeting people and then also um, having clients that refer.
2: What I like about what you're saying there, among other things, Shannon, is that when you, it sounds to me like the way that you blog and the way that you utilize social media allows you to indicate and showcase your own authenticity, which people can then opt into.
3: Yes. I am just very, very honest when I write because I want people to look at my website, to look at the writing, and get a sense of, would she be somebody I'd want to meet with in her tone and sort of humor and just the way she is, even on written words? Does that resonate? And if it doesn't, I tell everyone that calls for an appointment, there are many, many good therapists in the community, and I'm happy to refer to folks who have a different style, a different approach, That's one key thing when I work with my interns and my staff with new therapists. We don't look up at the competition. I have horse blinders on. I don't even know what's going on out there in other counseling practices because that's them, that's their DNA, that's their fingerprint. I have my head down and I'm doing what I feel like is best for us and for our clients and what works for me. I do not look up at all. And I would highly recommend that for people that – Just be who you are, be who you are in your industry, push those boundaries to the point that you can that's still, you know, ethical and don't look up because it gets really crazy making. I could throw a rock and find five therapists within like miles of me, you know, they're all different and they're going to meet their clients needs completely different than I am. And that is fabulous.
2: Completely agree with that, Shannon, and a perfect way to cue us up for our first break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. who have been on the air with Shannon Thomas, who is the owner and lead therapist of South Lake Christian Counseling. So far, we've been talking about how and why she got into the field and how she's practiced and built her business. After the break, we're going to talk about really how to recognize psychological abuse and six stages of recovery. Stay with us.
1: To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose.
4: We go through all kinds of challenges in life. How we deal with them is a different story. If we carry them on our shoulders, we can experience health problems, relationship issues, and other negative aspects these challenges can pose. Jeanette Abney's Precious Predicaments is here to help you pick up and sort out the pieces through education and encouragement. You don't have to live in fear and pain. Let's find solutions together. Precious Predicaments is heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment.
0: It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people? Your environment? Fear? What could give you a push? Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
1: This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to one 346 9141 Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose.
2: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Shannon Thomas, who is the owner and lead therapist of Southlake Christian Counseling. She works with a variety of therapy and life coaching topics and focuses on individual growth and improving interpersonal relationships. Those relationships can be marital, dating, families, friendships, or the workplace. She joins us today from Southlake, Texas. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Before the break, we were talking about how and why you entered the field, Shannon. And now I really want to get into kind of more of the meat of some of the stuff that you work on there and your practice, uh, psychological abuse specifically. Um I know that 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 has been a focus of yours for some time, and i, I want I wanna understand if you maybe give us some examples of the kinds of situations that clients present that indicate to you that they have been psychologically abused, Maybe just start there if you can,
3: sure, absolutely. Um, psychological abuse is what I'm calling hidden abuse and what a lot of people call it because it's very, very difficult to see uh, in the day-to-day, but it's there. And when clients come in, typically uh, they're in quite distress when they don't know what's happened within their relationship or they know something's not right. And some of the key factors that, as I mentioned before, looking for patterns, this works very, very well with um, my mind and my style and how I interview clients and we talk and we pull out um the insidious nature of psychological abuse and it's I tell a lot of clients that it's kind of I tell clients it's like bone to marrow that it's hard to tell sometimes between what is normal and what is not and one of the things that we look for there are many many there are many terms within psychological abuse that When clients get a grasp of what that is, uh, like gaslighting, flying monkeys, intermittent reinforcement, trauma bonding, some of these words that folks would not really ever have an idea of what they mean, but when they're able to grasp those terms, and I'm happy to go over them what they mean, um, they have aha moments of, wow, I have really been abused and it's been completely under the radar, but I knew it was there. And I know that I'm seeing the anxiety and the depression and the consequences of having been psychologically abused.
2: Would you go over those terms? I had never heard of those terms before. So would you explain them to us?
3: Absolutely. Uh, gaslighting came from a movie, a um, movie back in the 1940s, and it was about a man who created a situation that made his wife think she was losing her mind. He would flicker the lights, he would play mental games with her, and when she would say, "Did you see that?" he would say, "No, you're you're crazy. You're you're something wrong with you." And I won't give a spoiler on the, the movie, but there was a distinct reason why he was needing her to doubt herself. And so gaslighting is those are those moments where abusers will twist and turn and speak in circular conversations where you just feel like your head is spinning. And if you come at that with truth, they'll spin some more. And it's all done so that the survivor, that's what we call the people who have been on the other side of psychological abuse because they are surviving and living and thriving through it, The survivor will start to doubt their own perceptions of life, and if an abuser can get somebody to doubt their own eyes, their own ears, the things that they see in the world and being doubting of whether they're truth, then they've got a complete hook on being able to control that person. A lot of times when clients first come in, we start with, the sky is blue, the grass is green we really have to get to some concrete things because psychological abusers will twist and turn and try to present the sky as purple.
2: Mm. And then there's, there were two or three other terms that you mentioned as sure. well. And that does make a lot more sense to me. I, I, I understand that better now. Interesting.
3: Yeah. Flying monkeys is a term that comes from the movie The Wizard of Oz and how the Wicked Witch sent out her minions, her monkeys, to go out to do her business. And folks that have been psychologically abused, the abuser will always have a group of people that surround them and support the abusive behavior and the insidiousness and the cryptic nature of psychological abuse. Flying monkeys come in two forms. One is that they don't know. They're very innocent people who do not recognize that they are dealing with a narcissist, a sociopath, a psychopath. When we talk about psychological abuse, those are the personality disorders narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder that, I'm, that I address. And we talk about toxic people. We're talking specifically about those narcissistic personalities and psychopathic personalities. Flying monkeys are the people who, who come around and manipulate and support the abuser and um, kind of give them the kudos. There are two people, like I said, one does not realize what they're dealing with and does not realize that they're being a pawn. The second type of flying monkey knows good and well that they are supporting very bad behavior. And for whatever reason, they are um, aligned with the abuser. They somehow get some financial benefit. They get some sort of ego stroke. There's some reason that they have taken camp with this abuser. Uh, we talked about intermittent reinforcement. That's a term where a client will come in and it's the never knowing what they're going to get with a person. They never know if they're going to get the nice person. They never know if they're going to get the one screaming or yelling. Abusers come in both genders. So we have female narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths. We have males as well. And I my practice is very equal of male and female survivors. So when clients first come in, they're in a state of what we call despair. That's the first stage of the six you mentioned. And we start, we start to pull out the story so they can realize that they are not crazy because that's a big term that gets thrown around, That the survivor's crazy, the survivor's the problem. And we start to find their feet on the ground again. And so that's where we start.
2: Wow. Um, I, I just can't even imagine the kind of the level, the intensity of work that you do, Shannon. It's just listening to you talk is, wow. I mean, this is really intense stuff.
3: It is. I like to go running a lot after work. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. And, I do. and now you understand my, my complete obsession with self-care and um, having a balanced life and being able to, but it's also the most incredibly enriching experience that I have had in my career is being able to bring it all together. And the way looking at things and seeing things and watching people get healed, it, there's just nothing
2: like it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Talk about impact and making a difference, a positive difference.
3: Thank
2: you. Um, so you mentioned, are there two more, so one or two more terms that you had indicated before that we haven't gotten to yet? Is that right? Or did we get them oh. all?
3: Um, we may have gotten them all. There's also trauma bonding. That is the biochemical reactions that happen when people are in psychologically abusive relationships where there's intermittent reinforcement, the body, the adrenaline, the cortisol, um, all of the dopamine, all of those things that happen on a brain chemistry level, pull in the survivor to really needing and becoming dependent on that abuser for their joy, for their good feelings, um, and all of that gets very manipulated. So it's not just the mind and and the subconscious, it's also the body's reaction as well to abuse.
2: Okay. Okay. Let me ask you this. I wonder if our listeners are wondering this as well. Uh, Is psychological abuse the same thing as what I've heard of as emotional abuse?
3: It is in some regards, but I find the term psychological abuse to encompass more. Because it includes the, um, physiological, it includes the, the mind games, it's the, it is similar for some advocates, but for me there's a little bit of a difference. Emotional abuse doesn't quite signify the depth and the entertainment that narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths really gleam from harming people. There are, there's, it's on a spectrum, but there is a large portion of toxic people who do this for entertainment. Emotional abuse can also happen when somebody's just very broken. Um, The abuser has their own issues, but they could change. Narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths do not change. So for me, there's a difference between the two. We can be emotionally abusive and not intend to and have all kinds of empathy for people. Mm -hmm. Psychological abusers do not embody any of that.
2: Okay, that was very helpful. Thank you, Shannon. Sure. Um, well, let's talk about those. I, I'm, I'm Now that we've kind of talked a little bit about the context of some of the issues that you treat, I would love to hear you address the the six stages of recovery that you describe in working with your clients. You mentioned the first one. Did you say it was despair? Yeah.
3: Despair. Mm-hmm. Despair. And that's when a lot of despair clients come in, and um, I've come up with these six stages from a couple different venues, just want to mention that real quick, of having worked with clients for a long time, and then I was very... Um, joyful to have had TCU's Social Work Department and Dr. Aisha John agreed to do a research project with me back in January, February of this year, and that was examining patterns of psychological abuse, and we were able to do an online survey. We had over 600 people in about a week and a half, two weeks. Um, we had 500 within the first four days answer narrative questions on psychological abuse. And so taking the work that I've done in practice and then taking the research material, it all aligns. And these six stages were what I have come up with as what I see as the journey for clients. And um, so I'm very excited to have been able to develop this and get that out for folks. And so, yes, the first stage is despair. And most times clients come in, they don't even know they've been abused. They know that life's become unmanageable. They know that things are very, very out of control. Um, but at the beginning, survivors really blame themselves because that's what they've been conditioned to do in this insidiousness of the abuse. Um, and so we really look to make sure that they're safe, that we don't have any suicidal thoughts. If we do, we deal with those. We get people where they can start to breathe again. And um, And then we get through the next stages and... I can continue on if you want me to talk about those six stages at this point.
2: yeah, please do. I, I want to hear the whole okay. the whole spectrum, yeah okay, you bet so we
3: start with despair. The second stage is education, and I did go through some of the key ones with you already that we really want folks to understand, and the reason education is so important is because psychological abuse is misunderstood, and so Victims often and survivors often have been told that they're wrong, that they're crazy, that they're not seeing what they're seeing, that they're not feeling what they're feeling. And so when people get out and they're able to read books, read blogs, there's a very large presence um, of peer support on Facebook, on Twitter, um, being able to recognize that there are specific names to the things that have been done to them, like gaslighting like the flying monkeys, like all of these other terms. And there's a bunch of terms. There's terms like gray rock and all kinds of things. Second stage of education is really important for a survivor to realize it's not just me. And it helps the spinning of the chaos stop for them. And now they actually have words to put to it. The third stage is what I call awakening. That's the moment where they go, they have aha moments and they're like, Wow, this really was not my fault. Sure, we all have areas of growth, sure we all can look at our, our ourselves and we need to. And I always tell clients, I'm gonna step on your toes here because we gotta look at them too. But the bottom line is that in psychological abuse they were targeted for a reason, and that's a whole nother probably story actually. But the third stage is awakening where they start to realize I can get through this. There are other survivors out there. There's a huge subculture of survivors online and meeting. And the awakening stage is really hopeful. The fourth stage is where they have to start to look at, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm out of despair, even though there's good days and bad days and it swings back and forth. I have knowledge now. I've read some really good books. My favorite book is Psychopath Free by Jackson McKenzie. It is fabulous to lay out exactly how these relationships happen. I now have an awakening that there are other survivors out there. I can get through this. Now what am I going to do with this abuser if I'm still, or abusers, because they come in forms of family, workplace, church, places of worship, uh, romantic relationships, friendships. I mean, this is, this is everywhere. And So then a survivor has to figure out their own boundaries. There's no contact. There's limited contact, and that's stage four of sorting through what they're going to do. Stage five is restoration. That's where we really take a deep look at what has been lost during the abuse. And in a very tangible way, is that financial, emotional, physical, material, relational, memories, and vacations. There's something about toxic people that they ruin vacations, Not all of them, but very generalized. They ruin uh, holidays, other types of things. So there's some redeeming that needs to be done from the experiences that they've had. And restoration is stage five. We walk through, okay, do you need to get back on your feet financially because you were financially abused or spent lots of money trying to make this relationship work or couldn't work? I've had many clients that their careers were lost because they were in such deep depression or... Anxiety, or the the abuser would come and try to sabotage their work. And then the final stage is maintenance. That's where they've walked through the other five, and there's a looping that happens as people walk through the recovery from psychological abuse where they may be at stage five, which is restoration, but they may return to despair some days because Mm -hmm. a lot of survivors end up having some post-traumatic stress triggers. So we work through those. And maintenance is getting to that point where a survivor can really live their life of recovery with confidence, and they know they have the skills to spot future abusers and get away from them and set better boundaries quickly. So that's kind of the six. Yeah, and I'm happy to return to any of those if you want to know a little bit more, but that's the journey that I have seen all survivors go through. Like I said, whether it's family of origin from their childhood, or now even, or a workplace, or other types of encounters that they've had with abusers.
2: Extremely helpful and interesting and well narrated. Um, and actually takes us right into our next break already, if you can believe that. So, um, wow. let's go ahead. I know it just it flies. Um, let's go ahead and take that short break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Shannon Thomas, who's the owner and lead therapist of South Lake Christian Counseling. We've been talking about um, how we might recognize psychological abuse in the six stages of recovery that she takes her clients through. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about how and why psychological abuse occurs and maybe how we might recognize if we're in one of those kinds of relationships ourselves. Stay with us.
4: you see someone? Are you seeing the person or the perception? We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment.
1: Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention.
2: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. If you're just tuning in at this hour, my guest is Shannon Thomas, who is the owner and lead therapist of Southlake Christian Counseling. She works with a variety of therapy and life coaching topics and focuses on individual growth and improving interpersonal relationships. Those relationships can be marital, dating, families, friendships, or the workplace. She joins us today from Southlake, Texas. We've been talking a bit about what psychological abuse is and how she addresses recovery, in this last segment, I really wanted to help our listeners understand the how and why this stuff occurs. You've mentioned before about about the actual abusers, if that's how you call them. I, want, I would love for you to be able to share your perspective on how people experience life and how they navigate their life toward their dreams. Um, but why do you think psychological abuse like this takes place in abusers? And why do they, you know, I don't know how they find their, yeah, I mean, how they find their victims, all that kind of thing. Why, what is happening here?
3: Yes, great, great, great question. Um, For me, and there's a lot of variety of opinions out there, you can Google it and you can find, you know, six different opinions from six different experts, and I kind of use that in air quotes. And it really has to be something that resonates with the person who's looking for the answers. For me, it is all about attachment. Um, attachment disorder, mm-hmm. att- lack of attachment in individuals typically growing up um, where there was either a overindulgence of the rules didn't apply to them. You know, parents came in and cleaned up every single mess. And I'm not talking about just... Helicopter parenting, this takes a lot of of a very dysfunctional environment to create somebody who's narcissistic personality disordered or antisocial personality disordered. Talking about the narcissistic personality, it is typically where there is a lack of attachment and that never gets dealt with. It's either overindulgence and extreme overindulgence where they can go out and make all kinds of mistakes. They're perfect. Nothing is ever their fault. And it's the repetitive over and over through years of that message. The other type of lack of attachment is where there's a form of neglect or things are not um, authentic in the home, that the child is sort of left to fend for themselves on some level. And right there, most people would start to feel bad for a narcissist or a sociopath or psychopath. But the truth is, is that then they take those wounds And they make it all about them. Life is all about them. Everybody is there to serve their needs. And they don't have normal attachments even to their own children, to their spouses, to anybody. And it's kind of the I'm going to get mine at your expense mentality. Where other people can grow up in not great homes and toxic homes and abusive homes and very extreme abuse. And they come out of those homes more empathetic and more wanting to understand other people around them and and wanting to have good boundaries but be able to meet people's needs, the narcissist chooses to behave that way because they have told themselves over and over and over again that it is about them, they are never wrong, and it's everybody else's fault. And what we think is what we feel. So we tell ourselves something long enough, and with such intensity, they truly believe it. Now we get to the antisocial personality disorder. There is some research on the higher end spectrum, the serial killers, those types of very extreme violent um, psychopaths, but there is some brain chemistry, there's some brain development. I am still of the mindset that it is about attachment and it is about lack of empathy at its core being, and then folks not doing any kind of work to try to realize, I have a problem. Toxic individuals and psychological abusers has, have every bit of evidence they need to stop and pause and realize they've got something wrong with them, but they never will. Because based on the personality disorders, they're never wrong. And so that's where an abuser comes in, and that's the way they are hardwired. Some folks look at brain scans, but the truth is is that if it truly was at a brain level, they wouldn't be able to turn it on and turn it off depending on which setting they're in. Because they know exactly how to behave when they're at church. They know exactly how to behave when they're at work. So if it was truly at a brain base, they wouldn't be able to turn it on and turn it off at the level of manipulation. Does that make sense? It's
2: fascinating. And then getting to
3: the, it really is. And and I, I think that's part of the intrigue for me as well. And then getting to the kind of people that are targeted by narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, it's not. A lot of people think it's because, oh, I, as a survivor, I was weak, I was an easy target. Not at all. It's actually the exact opposite. Toxic people and psychological abusers are drawn to those folks that are a challenge that either somehow make them look good or feel good in the beginning. It can either be the survivor's age, appearance, career success, financial success. There's something appealing, like a beacon, about that person that the narcissist or a psychopath or sociopath says, I want some of that. Then they get to the point in the beginning of the relationship where they get that, where they get that employee, or they get that person to be able to be a confidant or their friend, and then they set out to destroy the exact qualities that first attracted them to the person, almost as if I'm drawn to it because it makes me look good, but now you don't need to have those qualities.
2: Mm. Wow. Wow. Just, just intense. And in fact, that kind of makes me want to ask next then I think some people that are actually listening today may, may be listening because they want to, they want to find out if maybe they're in an unhealthy relationship, something like that. So what might be some of the signs that we should pay attention to if we're maybe in an unhealthy relationship?
3: Well, I think if we are able to step back and really look at the power dynamic, are we able to talk about our needs? Are we able to say, Hey, this bothers me about the relationship. Are we able to say you hurt my feelings, and that other person say, okay, I really want to know how, or in some other words, or is that other person able to apologize and kind of own their junk? So, sort of I don't mean to sound like a therapist, but you know, I am. So, <laughs> are they able? Are they able to really look and go, ooh, I really did make a mistake. I'm sorry. Let me see what I can do. Um, the idea, a lot of times, that survivors. And there is a wide range of income levels, um, of, of lifestyles, of different types of survivors out there. There's no stereotypical survivor. But one of the keys is that they start to feel like they can't make decisions for themselves anymore. I've worked with folks that are CEOs. I've worked with folks that do all kinds of different type of work. Some that are stay at home. Some that do you know wide variety of things in their daily lives. One of the key factors is they start to doubt that they can make decisions and they feel like they have to go back to the abuser all the time. It's the walking on eggshells. It's the, I can't come and just be an independent person and have a partner here. I can't go to work and talk to my coworker because everything I say gets spun around. If somebody is really wondering if they're in a psychologically abusive relationship, they also need to think about how do they feel when they're around that person. And really be able to get a gut check of am I anxious? Am I happy? Am I, what am I feeling when I'm in the presence of this person? And listen to the way they communicate because abusers do give themselves away. We just have to be able to hear it.
1: Mm.
2: So then, how do your clients recognize it's time to get help and then they find you? How do they, what's the trigger for them?
3: A lot of times it can be just like I said in the beginning, the despair, they're very, very anxious. They may have lost the relationship. The abuser may have discarded them. They may be at work and really just cannot get their hands wrapped around what's going on and why they can't get ahead and why a particular supervisor is sabotaging. Um, A lot of times it's them wanting to come in to fix themselves because they've been told something's very wrong with them by the abuser. Sometimes it's that they've done some reading and they've been able to get a little bit of glimmer that, okay, I think I may have been dealing with a narcissist or a sociopath or psychopath, then they'll look up who are therapists that specialize in it. But for the vast majority of my clients, they come in really thinking that there's something wrong with them and that they're crazy. And I use that in air quotes because calling someone crazy is one of the favorites of abusers. Um, you're crazy, you're jealous, you're insecure, you're, 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 all, all this projection out. So a lot of times it's coming in because they just can't manage anymore in some area of their life.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. So you meet people at a very, very tender place. It's really extraordinary the kind of work that you get to do, Shannon. It's amazing.
3: Thank you. I, I don't take a day for granted. I really, really don't. And it is really humbling to be honest, to be able to walk with folks during times that are just really difficult and messy. And I think that's where that thinking part comes in rather than the feeling part. They get to have all the feeling and I get to do the thinking and we start to work together.
2: Yeah, I can see that. Great partnership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that you and I talked about before that I'm really curious about and, and I would like to better understand is this notion of spiritual abuse. What is this concept and how does that happen?
3: Well, that takes everything you and I have talked about and puts it in a church setting. So now we add God with a capital G into this this mix of abuse and this mix of manipulation. And we take church culture of you know put on a good smiley face. Some church cultures, some churches are fabulous at helping their uh, members and their folks be authentic and real. And life is messy, and that's okay. And Jesus was okay with messy, from what we read. But some church cultures are button it up, keep it quiet, you know, put on the good face, and we don't talk about our problems. And I've heard some pastors even say from the pulpit, particularly to the women, ladies, do not go to your life groups and talk about your husbands. Ladies, do not be complaining about your husbands. So that message that gets sent over and over again is, I need to be a good wife or I need to be a good husband even because there's spiritual abuse that happens with men. It is predominantly women but um, because of the higher nature of some churches. But the spiritual abuse adds the piece of, what you need to forgive, and using Scripture on forgiveness, and using Scripture on headship, and using Scripture to keep people from talking about abusive relationships? Because we have just recently, I mean, however many years, even recognized physical abuse among marriages in the Church. So being able to try to describe the insidiousness of gaslighting or flying monkeys, I mean, a lot of people will try to get church assistance through their pastors, and they end up sounding like they're paranoid, and they are not at all. So the spiritual abuse piece comes from that idea that even God can be used as a flying monkey because, well, if I'm in a setting that God told me, God said, you need to do this, it's as if that entity is being used as a co-abuser, and it's very, very prevalent in the church.
2: Wow, that is incredibly eye-opening to me. Um, I'm glad I asked that question. I bet some of our listeners are, too. Thank you for that. Um, It's kind of sobering, frankly, but um, important to understand.
3: It is Uh, very sobering, and it's important to understand that there's good churches out there, but there are some that are not.
2: mm Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost to the close of the show here. I want to, if if we can, and maybe just maybe a minute, minute and a half, um, I know that you can't disclose any any of your clients that you work with, but maybe you can do like an amalgamation of situations that you address. I want to help people understand the results that you help produce or work with in your clients. Can you maybe paint that for us?
3: Sure, you bet. Somebody would come in um, and have had, you know, to take a leave of absence from work or feel like they're not doing as well at work. I'm going to use a romantic relationship. Feeling like their children are being also manipulated by the abuser. Uh, We've been able to work on setting healthy boundaries. Abusers will push those boundaries, but being able to really look at what are the bottom lines for an abuser for the survivor in that abusive situation. Where are there moments where they're not going to continue in this relationship? being able to walk through those six stages and having clients be able to return to their work, be able to have restoration in their lives, um, be able to be either in limited contact with an abuser, which means that it's very aware of what's going on, not getting pulled into the games, setting limits, falling through on those limits, or choosing to go no contact, however that would look as well, depending on the circumstances, but really being able at the end of their journey To see the growth in themselves, I have more clients that talk about, I would never want to walk through this again, but boy, has it refined me in some incredible ways that I would never want to be without. And so that's that maintenance stage, really walking through and growing and changing themselves. Not that they were to blame in the beginning at all, because you wouldn't have a skill set to know how to keep a psychological abuser away until you've needed it. It's just not what we teach. It's beyond boundaries. It's much deeper than that but then being on the other side of it and being able to feel like I can keep myself safe. And so that's sort of the journey that a lot of folks go through.
2: Wow. Um, again, amazingly important work that you're doing. And I, I can tell you, I have certainly learned a lot in this show. Shannon, thank you very much. I don't know a lot about the, the world of work that you're in. Um, I do do coaching in the workplace, but usually not on, we're not, we're not talking about it from the a psychological abuse vantage point. So everything you've shared today has been phenomenal and very, very much appreciated. I think that our listeners will probably be reaching out via social media saying thank you for, for your wisdom. So thank you for being with us today on the show.
3: Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, giving a a forum and a venue for lots of different um, entrepreneurs and people out there in the workplace.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, the the show is really about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work. And so when I get to showcase guests like you who have chosen a field that they love, that they're passionate about, and they're making a difference in, um, you make for a good guest. So thank you, Shannon.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
2: You're welcome. So if you want to learn more about Shannon Thomas and her practice, please visit her website, which is SouthLakeCounseling.org. It's been, as I said at the beginning, a nourishing conversation. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Remember that work is at least one third of our lives. So let's work on purpose.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.